Right, thank yes. you very much for coming, everybody. Uh, I'm Richard Stevens. I'm the course director of one of the many master's courses on the programme. And we've timed this particular talk to coincide with one particular module of our master's programme, Essential Medical Statistics. But like all our talks, it's open to you all. Some people here are students on this week's course. Some of you are staff on the course, but a lot of you are visitors, either people I know by sight or people I don't know by sight or people I've just met. Either way, thank you. I saw Professor Alexander Bird speak at a conference last summer and ever since then, every time I've heard somebody worry about the replication crisis in medical publishing, I think you've got to hear Alexander Bird speak. So very, very pleased that I can say to you, you've got to hear Professor Alexander Bird speak and here he is from King's College London where you're Professor of Philosophy and Medicine. That's right, yes. Yeah, great combination. I don't know if anybody else has that job title in the world. Very, f I don't know, uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. Okay, thank you for coming. Great. Right, great, thanks very much indeed, Richard, for the, the invitation. It's a pleasure to be, to be here. Um, I'm a philosopher, but with a particular interest in, in medicine and in teaching medical students, which I do at King's Guys campus. Um, and I'm general interest in how it is that we know what we know in, in science and when possibly we don't know what we think we do know. And the replication crisis, or so-called replication crisis, is uh, of particular interest to me, therefore. Um, so what is this so-called replication crisis? Well, here's a little bit of evidence that a, an article in Nature did a survey not desperately scientific survey, it must be said, but a survey of its readers and of those uh, 1,500 or so scientists who responded, 52 of them, 52% of them rather, uh, said that they thought there was a significant crisis of reproducibility in science. That is to say, the phenomenon whereby a result is published in the scientific journals, uh, it seems to be important and interesting uh, results supported by the evidence, um, but then others come along and try to reproduce that experiment and then get a result that is either a null result or is a result with a, uh, of a, an effect size much smaller than originally reported. So we are failing to re reproduce much of the, the science that we thought was uh, correct. And this is affecting, in particular, uh, biomedical research and social psychology, and other bits of psychology as well, but social psychology especially. Uh, I, I will concentrate on the medical side, because that's what, where we all come from. But afterwards, I'd be happy to talk about the social psychology because it is actually it's more amusing than the medical side. Um, but on the medical side, the biotech company Amgen uh, undertook a large-scale replication study of uh, 53 publications or, uh, in, in oncology and got a successful full replication of the original result in only six 
cases. And as I say, there's also social psychology, but we'll leave that uh, for as of the after talk uh, natter. Um, okay, so um, what I want to do is to give um, one angle on understanding what's going, going on and uh, to explain why I think that this outcome, this crisis, is entirely predictable. And then we can talk a bit about you know, how we should feel about it in the light, if, light of what, I've, uh, what I'm arguing, if it's, if it's correct. And to do this, the first thing I want to do is to talk about uh, the so-called base rate fallacy. And this will be, I'm sure, familiar to, uh, to many of you, but it's worth repeating just in case uh, there are some who, with who, for whom it's not entirely familiar. So the, you're given this, this problem, uh, this question. Uh, you're told uh, about a screening program for a uh, disease which... Uh, affects one in a thousand individuals, and we, our screening program is 95% accurate. Um, and we're screening everybody, um, not, not just those with uh, prior indications, but, but, but everybody of a particular age group are, are, is being screened. Um, and a particular individual tests positive, we know nothing else about them. We know of no other risk factors. Um, all we know is that they've passed the, the test. Perhaps you're a GP and this individual comes into surgery and says, I've taken this test. It tested positive. Um, yeah. Do I have this horrible disease? And then the question is, well, what, what should you say? What should you tell the patient about their chances of having uh, the, uh, the disease? Famously, this question was put to medical students at Harvard in uh, 1978. And of those, um, only 11 out of 60 got the correct answer. Okay, so what is the correct answer? Um, well, the incorrect answer is, look, it's a highly reliable test. Uh, you've very probably got the, uh, the disease. Um, that's the wrong answer, which we can see this way. So let us imagine there are a thousand individuals, uh, one of whom there thought, does indeed have this disease. And we run these thousand people through our screening test. It's 95% accurate. So 95% of the people uh, without the disease are told, you're fine. So 95% home saying you've tested negative. Um, but of course, that mean, leaves 5% who are told falsely that you do have the disease. Uh, and we can assume it's very highly probable that the one person with the disease is told that they've got the disease. It's 95% probable that they will be. But what we see there is that we've got about 50 individuals who have been told they've got the disease, only one of whom actually has it. So that means you know, of those told that they have disease uh, or who test positive, in fact, only 2%, you know, 1 in 50, actually has the disease. So that's the, the right uh, answer. So 
what we've got is a situation where the base rate of this disease is one in a thousand, and we can call this uh, this, this number pi uh, for the, the base rate or the, the prior probability of an individual actually having this disease, and false positive rate of five percent. Um, we can call this uh, alpha. Um, and what we've shown is that the false positives amongst the 999 people who didn't have the disease, the false positives amongst them greatly outnumber the one true positive. Okay. And failing to recognise this fact is the fallacy of base rate neglect or of ignoring the, uh, the base rate. And what I'm going to argue is in a sense, that's exactly what's going on in the replication crisis. Now, for those of you who are a bit more into their statistics, I've, you will know that I've been... Yeah, you said, he said it's accurate, 95% accurate. Well, that's ambiguous. What does that exactly uh, mean? Well, there are two types of accuracy that I, I could mean. Uh, one is... Uh, the you know, accuracy in the sense of avoiding false uh, positives, um, and then there's an accuracy in the sense of avoiding uh, false negatives, and these are two you know, different types of accuracy, and they can come and do typically come uh, apart. Um, I will be focusing, for most of what I say, on, on this thing, alpha, which is the type 1 uh, error rate, um, and the corresponding accuracy, 1 minus alpha. I will be assuming throughout that the power is quite high. Um, in fact, for the calculations, I'll be assuming it's unrealistically high at 0.995, because I want to show that if we get a problem even if you've got high-powered studies, um, or, that, or, or that the issue arises even if all our studies are high-powered, high and we can, we can discuss um, what happens in the, in the real world where many of our studies are less highly powered uh, than, than that. Okay, okay. so um, what's the lesson of the fallacy of ignoring the base rate? A little example we had moment ago with the screening program is that we want to avoid mixing up these two kinds of conditional probability. The probability that someone is disease-free, given that they've tested positive for the disease, and the probability that they test positive, given that they don't have uh, the disease. This one here is the false positive error rate. That's the positive, that's the probability that they test positive even though they're disease-free. Uh, and that's our thing alpha. But this thing up here is quite a different thing, which is the pro probability that they're disease-free even though they've tested positive. And what we've seen is that these two are not only distinct, but they are quite, quite different in value. I mean, just to get a grip on that difference, it's like the difference between these probabilities the probability that the temperature will be below zero, given it's snowing, which is very high, 
if it snows, you can be pretty sure that the temperature is below zero, close to it. With this thing here, the probability it will snow given the temperature is below zero, which is actually, um, um, that's quite low. You know, we often get frosts, but without, without snow. Or possibly, you know, more, more medically, what's the probability that someone has spots given that they've got measles? Quite high. What's the probability that they've got measles given they've got spots? Quite low. Right. Um, so, in the case of our diseases, we've found that the false, false positive error rate can be, be quite low at 5%, even though the false positive report probability, um, the probability that a positive report is in fact a false one, actually is going to be very high, 98%. So, you know, if you are told by the screening program you've got the disease, the probability disease-free is very high, 98%. Okay, now, now let us get back to, we'll get to the replication crisis. Um, so I'm going to use the method of philosophers, which is to tell outrageous uh, stories. Um, you really, they're little vignettes, models uh, that we can use to, to, to get a grip on uh, what's going on. So I'm going to tell a story of a mad scientist, Dr. M, um, who generates crazy hypotheses. He's wildly creative and imaginative, um, but he's not so mad that he uses bad methods for testing his hypotheses. It's just he's got this wild imagination. But when it comes to testing his hypotheses, he does so really quite stringently. He uses null hypothesis significance testing, quite the proper way, you, with a, a, a significance level of, of, of uh, 5%. So... Uh, <clears throat> Now let's imagine that for Dr. M, he is generating of wild new ideas, very creative, uh, but so creative, so imaginative, that very few of them turn out to be right. In fact, only one in a thousand of his new hypotheses is in fact true. The rest are all false. But because he's using null hypothesis significance testing in the proper way, um, his accuracy, his, uh, his 1 minus alpha, is 95%. Right. Okay. So we can ask ourselves the question, Dr. M has tested lots of hypotheses. One of them has tested, has gone through uh, the you know, a randomized controlled trial with null hypothesis significance testing, and he's got a p-value of... of uh, less than 0.05, so in a sense it's past our standard test for truth, what is the probability that it is in fact true? That's our question. So, we've got a publishable result. Perhaps he sends it off and publishes it in a top journal, because after all, you know, he's done a randomised controlled trial in a perfectly proper way and got a statistically significant result. But what's the chance that it is in fact true? Well, I hope you can see that the structure of this question 
is exactly the same as the structure of the question I asked about uh, the screening program. Uh, there we had a disease that was found in one individual in every thousand. Here we've got a person who's generating a set of hypotheses, one of which is true in every thousand. In the screening program case, we had a test for the disease, which was 95% accurate. Here, we've got a method of testing these hypotheses, which is 95% accurate. We've got exactly the same structure of, uh, of problem. And so it will turn out that the chance that Dr. M's positive result that it's true is just 2%. Right. Just um, as you know, in the, um, uh, the, the screening program case, uh, there the people who, the false positives, greatly outweighed the one true positive. The same will be the case for, for Dr. Dr. M. Okay. So, um, now, let's move from Dr. M to sane Professor S. She generates hypotheses. She's working in a new field. It's a difficult area of science. Uh, because it's new, there's you know, not a lot of indication of where the truth really lies. Um, she generates some hypotheses and she tests them stringently. In her case, we are going to imagine that the base rate of truth is 10%. So she's 100 times better than mad Dr. M. You know, her, her, she's much better at generating hypotheses, but still, because of the difficulty of her area, its newness, some other factors, if she gets things right in her hypothesizing one occasion in, in 10. She uses exactly the same hypothesis testing methods as Dr. M and the rest of us. Um, and so her accuracy, her, her 1 minus alpha, is, is 95%. So she gets a positive result. Uh, it's publishable, same reasons. What is the chance that it is in fact true. What's the probability it's, um, it's true given that it passes the stringent test? And I think I've got. Um, and I'm going to give you slightly give you the wrong number actually. I think it's one minus this. Uh, this. So the, um, the chances are 68%. Right. Um, and on this slide it says 32%, which is the, the wrong way around. Um, that's. That, uh, so. Sorry, I'm going to change the slide. So that should be 68%. This is the chance that it's false. Right, okay. Um, okay, so um, in this case, we've, as I said, we don't want to conflate these two, two things. In this case, we've got, um, you know, if, if you conflate them, and I think this is part of the, this is part of the problem that, that's going, going on, you'll think, we're using null hypothesis significance testing 
uh, alpha of 5%. Um, that means, the previous slide, um, that our hypothesis will give us a significant result, um, even though it's false, in 5% of cases. And you might think, oh, that's, that's fine, 5%, it's, you know, it's small enough, that means that we'll be getting things wrong only one time in 20. But getting things wrong only in one time in 20 looks as if you're saying this. I'm saying, yeah, we're getting things wrong, you know, given that we get a successful result only one time in 20. But that's, that's a mistake. So we've seen from all the previous cases that these two things are not the same. And this can be quite small, whereas that can be quite high in the case of Dr. M and in the case of this greening program that was 5% but that was 98%. Uh, in the case of sane, doc, sane Professor S uh, this was 5% uh, and that was uh, 32%. Um, so, so imagine as it were you know, you conflate these two, but that's wrong, um, because uh, in the case of Professor S, it's, that's 32%, not 5%. Um, but say you thought, actually, what you wanted was 5%. You wanted it to be the case that of all, as it were, the successful hypotheses, the ones that uh, come through our null hypothesis significance testing um, with an alpha of 5%, successfully give us statistically significant results. You wanted only 5% of them, them to be wrong. Okay. You wanted 95% of the stuff you think is publishable to be correct. Then the question is, what alpha would you have to have in order to get that result? Um, that's to say, what p-value would you have to have if you want um, to generate only 5% of our positive results being false and 95% being true. Well, it actually will have to be a whole lot smaller than that 5%. Um, we could, this is given um, um, these assumptions. So it has to turn out to be um, yeah, almost one-ninth uh, of the, the the 5% that we started off with. Um, okay, so um, what I've been suggesting is that we would expect to get a high rate of false positives in our research if two things are correct if we have uh, a low background rate of truth. So in the case of Professor S, I was suggesting it, that one in ten of her hypotheses is true, nine out of ten are, are false. And an alpha uh, that, although it may be low, is non-negligible, so 5%. Five, five so if we regard a p-value as as a significant, publishable, and so forth, it's less than 5%. So that 5% is low, but it's not negligible. Um, and it's the combination of these two that I think will 
generate, I've argued, will generate a high proportion of false results uh, amongst those uh, we think are publishable. So in the case of Professor S, it was that 32% um, of her results turned out to be mistaken, even though she got a positive outcome. She got statistically significant uh, results at the 5% level. So, of course, if a perfectly good scientist, Professor S, is producing results that are mistaken almost one occasion in three, then it's hardly surprising when other scientists come along and try to reproduce her work, they find that they fail to do so in a number of cases. Um, so, but that's, to say this, is, not to, is clearly not to impugn her at all. She's doing the best science she possibly can in a challenging area. Um, you know, she's not engaging any questionable research practices. You know, she's doing everything you buy by the book. The only problem is, well, the two problems are, that you, where she, the field she's working in makes it difficult to know, you know, to guess what the good hypotheses are, to guess what the truth is, to generate ideas that are likely to be true, combined with you know, the standard value of alpha at 5%. Now, um, so what I've shown is that this combination will generate a high proportion of false positives in our research. Um, next question is, is our science like this? Does it have these, these features? Um, so we'll briefly talk about, about that and why I think that uh, the kinds of research that many of us are engaged in, or at least interested in, is such that we will have a low Pi, that's to say a low background rate of, of truth. Um, many of our hypotheses are derived from some underlying uh, lying theory. Um, now, first I'll talk a little bit about the way this works in physics, in particle physics. Um, so, in, you'll remember a few years ago, uh, CERN, using the Large Hadron Collider, they discovered uh, the Higgs boson. Uh, this is all very exciting. Um, why did they spend billions of pounds building a machine to find this Higgs boson, amongst other things? But well, that was the main thing that they wanted to, to find. Um, that's a lot of money to spend on, on an experiment, and you need to be pretty confident that uh, you're going to produce some interesting results if you're going to spend that kind of uh, money. And many people thought that the finding of the Higgs boson vindicated uh, all this expense. And that was because the hypothesis that there is a Higgs boson is derived fairly directly from something called the Standard Model of Particle Physics. And that's been around for some decades, you know, half a century, best part of half, half a century. Um, and, in fact, a bit more than. Um, and that theory is one of the, the Standard Model is one of the best confirmed theories in science. Um, and in fact, the 
Higgs particle was really one of the last bits of the jigsaw to be, to be fitted in. All its other predictions about what kinds of particle there might be uh, had been already uh, confirmed. So, scientists were in this position. Um, they were able to say, look, if the standard model is correct, then it's a pretty direct consequence. Not absolutely direct, but with a few very plausible assumptions, we could show that there must be this thing, the Higgs particle. And furthermore, they could say there is very strong evidence that this standard model is correct. Put those two together, you think, we should be pretty confident there is that Higgs particle out there somewhere. And then you can devise the experiment to, to detect it. Okay, but is this... Now let's turn to medicine. It is, are things like that in medicine? Uh, the answer, I think, is very rarely. Um, and that's not because there's something wrong with medicine. It's just, in some ways, a lot more complicated than particle physics. Um, yeah, don't have any physics envy. They have, you know, they, they have it easy. It's you guys involved in, in medical research who have, have the difficult, difficult jobs. Um, we medicine suffer from a weak underlying theory, relatively speaking, because, well, for one reason, um, it, there can be weak connections between what we discover from basic research, say in physiology, and what we think might happen if we introduce a drug into someone. Um, it's, we can make plausible connections but the complexity of the, the human body, it's potentially have homeostatic mechanisms that work or sometimes don't work. Um, and the fact that things are so complicated means it's very difficult to say with, certain, with certainty, given what we've discovered from our basic research, this is how we think this drug will affect uh, a, an individual. Um, and secondly, we may often be working with underlying theories that are themselves um, plausible, have some evidence, but not entirely uh, certain. Um, so, for example, the example I use is that of um, the drug bapinuzumab, which was developed in order to uh, help patients suffering from Alzheimer's. In this case, the underlying theory is that it's the uh, beta amyloid plaques that we find in the brains of Alzheimer's sufferers that are the cause of Alzheimer's and of the cognitive impairment that uh, Alzheimer's uh, patients suffer from. Um, Bapinuzumab was a, a, a drug uh, based on antibodies to the, these plaques and the hope was that as an antibody that it would uh, prevent the uh, further development of these plaques and may even uh, cause their reduction and in consequence would help Alzheimer's patients, uh, help prevent them from getting uh, their condition worsening, or possibly even uh, help uh, repair the damage that they had suffered. 
a lot of money was put into developing the drug and into trialing it. Uh, sadly, the outcome uh, was, was null. There was no uh, benefit deriving from this drug. I mean, it's entirely plausible to think the idea that this, it could have helped. Yeah. If we're right that the cause of Alzheimer's and the cognitive deterioration that it involves are these plaques, then it's quite plausible that an antibody to them will be, be helpful. Um, but even if the underlying theory, the amyloid cascade hypothesis, was correct, there's no certainty that the antibody would help. It seemed like a plausible idea, but certainly no, you know, no guarantee. And furthermore, scientists weren't even sure that the amyloid cascade hypothesis was correct. So there are others who thought that the that so-called tangles that are associated with Alzheimer's are more significant in, as a causal uh, factor than the beta amyloid uh, plaques. So in this case, um, you, we, we can say the following things. If the, this hypothesis is correct, um, then it's conceivable that bapinumizumab will help Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, it's, it's not a bad idea. Um, and then we can also say that this amyloid cascade hypothesis might be correct, but the evidence is far from conclusive. So we can see the contrast with the physics case. We had no reason to be, we had some reason to be hopeful that BAPI would do the job, but we had no reason to be highly confident. Um, uh, so there, here, that's my reason for thinking that. Um, in much medical science, we should start off by thinking that our hypotheses have a low prior chance of being correct, uh, just because it's really, really difficult and our knowledge is very, very partial. There are other reasons um, for thinking that the hypotheses we actually put forward for testing um, may have a prior probability of being correct that's quite low. And, and other things that we can think about are the fact that there's pressure to do experiments to try and find out what's going on. After all, Alzheimer's is a very serious uh, problem for many individuals. It would be good if we could find something that, that works. And so there's quite a lot of pressure on us to think what might help and then to test it. That means as well, we will be putting forward hypotheses and testing them, as it were, at a relatively earlier stage, epistemically speaking, you know, the stage when our knowledge and our expectations about their being correct are relatively low, compared, say, to the physics case. You think about the physics case. Um, they were going to be pretty darn sure that the, that the Higgs boson existed before they went looking for it. Um, it would have been rather embarrassing to say we built this billion euro uh, experiment and unfortunately it's not found the thing that we were looking for. So you know, there the experimentation comes, you know, they have every motivation to delay experimenting until they were sure that the experimenting experiment would show what they wanted it to do. In medicine the pressures are in the other direction. 
the pressure sort of you think up hypotheses and test them early, even though we may not be certain of what the outcome is. And that may be a good, well, we can just debate whether that's a good or a bad thing. It's just different. So the other feature of the explanation is the non-negligible alpha. The fact that we regard something as uh, a statistically significant outcome if we get a p-value of less than 0 0.05. Um, well, this doesn't need much discussion since it's simply you know, the accepted convention. Um, that is the way much research in clinical medicine and in psychology works. We do, we use null hypothesis significance testing and we regard an outcome as statistically significant if the p-value is less than 0 0.05. Um, and that means that we will get type 1 error rate uh, of uh, 5%. Um, now, of course, this is a convention. <laughs> um, we can look into the history of uh, uh, of this, and you know, to find that the five percent is the number that was accepted from earlier in the twentieth century, but there's no particular reason why it has to be five percent or point zero five. Um, in physics, things are are, are different. The uh, convention is five sigma, five standard deviations. Uh, from the mean. So instead of having an error rate, a false positive rate of uh, 1 in 20, there's a type 1 error rate of 1 in 3 million. Now, I'm, yeah, we shouldn't think that's the, the correct standard. There will be different standards for, for different, uh, different scientists, but, uh, sciences. But it's a reminder that the 5% that we typically work with isn't, isn't given to us by, by God or by the rules of rationality. Um, it's, it's, it's a convention that we could decide to change if we so wished. Now, um, there are other explanations of what's going on uh, in the replication crisis. There's uh, discussion of low statistical power. There's you know, a lot of mention of publication bias and uh, other forms of bias, uh, so-called questionable research practices and even fraud. Um, we could talk about those, and I've got something to say about why I think that these are only weak or partial explanations. Um, I think it'd be nice to give you a chance to, to talk. So I'll just say that you know, there are other explanations on the table. The point of my uh, hypothesis is that we don't have to reach for these. We don't have to think that something bad is happening in science just because we've got unreproducible research. We could also ask what's to be done. Um, and I think that the, yeah, if, if what I'm saying is correct, then um, there are a number of things you, we could choose to do. We should just say, look, live with it. This is the nature of science. Who says science is easy? Who says it's always going to produce the right result? You know, it's just a fact that difficult science, difficult areas, is going to produce false results from time to time. Yeah, just expect that to be the case and learn to live with it. Um, 
On the other hand, if you are going to accept it, you, we, we ought to support replication better than we actually do. If you're going to accept that our science is going to produce false results, then you have to be more favourable to scientists who want to try and find out which those are. And I don't think we, yeah, if live with it is what you think we should do, then I don't think we are supporting re replication enough. I mean, some journals simply won't, won't uh, published replication studies, and that just seems to me to be bad practice um, in the light of what I'm saying. We could uh, put our effort into increasing the chance that our hypotheses are correct before we test them. You know, you, we want to be, yeah, we want to move from, you, you don't want to be Dr. Ma yeah, mad and produce what, what, loads of crazy, wild, but false hypotheses. You want to move from Dr. Mad to Professor Sane. But perhaps we should try and move from Professor Sane to, you know, uh, you know to a better position than, that she is in by, by being um, uh, more exacting before we put forward uh, hypotheses for research. And that, that would require doing more and more basic science uh, in order to work out which possible interventions uh, as, uh, have a decent chance of, of actually uh, working. I mean, the other thing we could do is just be more stringent in our testing and say, well, yeah, perhaps that an alpha of 5% is too, too lax. Um, note that there's going to be a trade-off between um, our value of alpha and the effect size. So that's to say that um, effect sizes which are statistically significant at the 5% level, it won't be statistically significant at the 1% level or, or lower in, in many cases, obviously. Um, <clears throat> is that a bad thing? Well, it might, or a good thing. Um, it might be a good thing in some cases because in a number of studies we, we find that particularly pharmaceutical companies have produced uh, studies with large numbers of subjects and they find an outcome that's statistically significant. But we look at the effect size and think, well, that's not clinically very important. Yes, statistically significant, but clinically insignificant. Um, now, it may be helpful to that pharmaceutical company because they've shown that their drug is marginally better than some existing treatment, and therefore, you know, other things being equal, um, you know, physicians will want to prescribe that new treatment. So it makes sense for the pharmaceutical company, but do we as a society, have, have we really benefited from this? Probably uh, not a lot. And so one outcome of doing this might be that, as it were, you know, we, we eliminate those kinds of case, um, that the things that are produced, you know, that say if we put alpha down to 1% or 0.5%, then it might be that you know, more of these statistically significant results are also clinically significant. But it might also be the case uh, that we miss out on some, some useful outcomes. Um, so I'll finish with one, one <laughs> uh, 
uh, with a nice graph, simply because I just put a lot of effort into making it. Um, um, just to point out that um, we talk about the power um, of a study, which is the, the ability to avoid type 2 errors. Um, the, that's to say, you, the power is the ability to, to detect what's true when it is in fact uh, uh, true. Um, so, um, point 0.8 is thought to be a, a, a you know, satisfactory level of power, but there's good evidence that many of our studies have lower power uh, than, than that. Um, and one of the things that I'm interested in is um, whether we want to put our effort, whether we should care about power um, or uh, low alpha or high 1 minus alpha. Um, and this up the side is the positive predictive value. It's 1 minus this false um, uh, positive report probability. Right, so that's to say, yeah, if you've got a positive report, um, what's the probability really is true? And it, what we want is to get as close to one as possible up there. We want it to be the case that when we've got a positive test result that, that, show, that, that really is uh, the case. Um, what this graph is showing is that so long as your power is reasonably high, then increasing power further doesn't get you much good. You, so so um, if, even if you had maximum of power of 1, uh, and your alpha is still 5%, and, you're, and we're working with a, a, a pi of, of 10%, like, like uh, Professor Sane, you're only one in 10 of our hypotheses is true, that would still be the case that almost a third of her positive outcomes are false. So to help her, what we need to do is not increase power, it's really at the maximum, but what we need to do is reduce, reduce alpha. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. on the other hand, if your power starts off really low, then there will be benefit to increasing power. So some of the debate that goes on in this area is, is it low power? Uh, that's that's a problem. Well, I think yeah, for very low-powered studies, then that might well be the case. But the point is that even for high-powered studies, you, there's still a way to go if uh, you have a non-negligible alpha combined with a difficult area where it's difficult to produce true new ideas. That's it.